Welcome to this episode of Safe Home Podcast for struggling teens and their families finding their healing path. I'm Beth Syverson, a mom of an 18-year-old son, Joey, who has been dealing with addiction and mental health issues for several years. I am walking beside him as he struggles with his recovery while I work on my own personal growth and healing. Our safe home has four pillars, addiction, mental health, adoption, and diversity. Today, we're going to be leaning on the mental health pillar primarily, but we'll probably touch on some of the others as well. Today's guest is Amanda Lipp, a documentary filmmaker and social entrepreneur working at the intersection of mental health, storytelling, and technology. Amanda has produced over 80 short documentaries about mental health and social impact covering topics such as youth psychosis, schizophrenia, art therapy, cyberbullying prevention, and housing relief from wildfires. A passionate mental health advocate, she's given over 150 speeches around the U.S. since age 18, sharing her journey navigating this complicated mental health system that we have. <laughs> Amanda is passionate about mental health leadership, policy change, and tying films to mental health research studies. She serves on the mental health advisory panel at Google and the Interdepartmental Serious Mental Illness Committee, ISMICC, created by Congress to advise on federal mental health policy. Amanda formerly served on the board of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, the largest grassroots mental health nonprofit in the US. Welcome to Safe Home, Amanda. So glad to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Beth, and happy to be here. And thank you to all the listeners for being here as well. Well, our family created Safe Home to help destigmatize mental illness in our society. And I know this destigmatization is near and dear to your heart as well. So thank you for being willing to share your personal story with us. Well, let's start off by giving us your background with the mental health industry. What are your credentials as far as your personal relationship with mental illness? Well, I come to the space primarily as a peer with someone with lived experience uh, going through the system myself as a teenager, um, currently 31 years old, uh, born and raised in Sacramento, California, and consider myself an advocate, a businesswoman, a filmmaker, public speaker, and really just passionate about raising awareness about mental health, whether it be through uh, filmmaking, uh, policy change, leadership, and just simply reaching out to folks and, and sharing information and seeing how we can improve the system. It's all so important. I'm so glad there are people like you working in the trenches like that. It's really good. A lot of us are just kind of trying to hang on. So you're, you're, it seems like you've gotten yourself onto a healing path enough that you're able to go out and help and make change on that kind of a bigger picture. Yeah. You know, it's every day is its own struggle though. I will say, um, you know, when I was in my late teens, it was definitely, and even just throughout middle school and high school, it was a constant struggle. Every day felt like its own little mini crisis for myself and my family. And now fast forward 10 years later, yes, overall things are better, more consistent or predictable, if you will, in terms of my mental health and doing a lot of therapy and a lot of reading of books, a lot of that self-care to get to that point where I can kind of start to understand my own patterns and, and behaviors and my own trigger points. But that's not to say every day is is good. It's definitely been even six months ago, I was really, really struggling with my mental health all over again. And sometimes mm -hmm. when those mental health issues kind of sneak back in, it feels like it was just yesterday in terms of being an 18-year-old kid in the mental health care system. I mean, I wouldn't say it was that bad, but it's not an upward trajectory of just getting well for me. Given the way my brain works, my mind works, my heart works, 
I think that I'll always have struggles, but I think that's also part of life. I think that I've also grown to just embrace and try to accept and love those parts of me Mm -hmm. and try to reframe or, or see the growth that can happen with those with those issues. So there's different strategies and coping tools I use to try to stay well, but it's definitely not always easy. I'm with you. In addition to my son's mental health issues, I have struggled with depression my whole life too. And man, sometimes you're like, sweet, I got this under control. (laughs) And then other days you're like, oof, not good. So I'm with you. Mm. And I don't know if you've seen that. I think it's like a meme or a little graphic healing is not just a straight up line. It's like squirrely and jagged. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. It's a constant of trying to connect the dots and the dots aren't there. Where are the dots? Yeah. It's definitely a big puzzle piece trying to always optimize our mental health and how that intersects with our family's mental health or our friends and, and those we love and care about. So it's complicated. It's beautiful. It's tragic. I think it's all the above sometimes. And sometimes self-awareness can be its own curse, I think in terms of just, uh, yeah, I don't know, being, being aware of my own triggers and points. I will say that I I would rather be more self-aware than not because the analogy I like to use is I think I used to have an emotional credit card when I was in middle school and high school. And I would just use that emotional credit card and just ignore essentially my, my struggles, my depression, my anxiety would avoid it. I would pretend like I was better, which is even worse, I think, than avoiding it for me at least. And Mm. I was that kid that you thought had it all together and maybe even still do. I come across like I have it all together, but let me tell you, I mean, like I said before, you know, sometimes I really have really hard bouts, even weeks or months where I'm really struggling and just learning how to channel that has been the greatest superpower. It's not so much getting rid of it, Mm -hmm. but how to harness, how to channel, how to try to own it and really not be ashamed of it. And I think that speaks to the kind of the the self-stigma and social stigma side of things. Mm -hmm. Do you think that your depression and anxiety give you gifts that you can use to create the life you want? Is there anything good that comes out of it? Yeah, I think so. I experienced more of the, the depression side of things when I was in middle school and high school. And a lot of it was induced by physical injuries, actually, mm-hmm. that intersection of being an athlete and being on sports teams. And that's really how I identified um, being part of my, my soccer community was a big, was a big one for me. Um, I also did karate, softball, and basketball. And whenever I was injured and didn't have that physical release and outlet of working out, which is a big part of my mental health treatment, it triggered my depression and still does. Actually, I had surgery on both my feet about eight months ago or so. And, and that was a really hard month because I couldn't move for a month. And that really brought back, wow, I really, working out is a big part of my mental health protocol, wow. if you will. So for me, that's a huge part, which might be because I'm a pretty hyperactive person. Mm-hmm. So if I'm kind of caged up and not able to move because of being injured, it's a really not good for my mental health at all. And I've, I've learned that over the years that that's kind of how my depression manifests and then that causes anxiety. So it's sort of like this ripple effect where I think diagnoses or symptomology or symptoms that we experience from these various mental health, uh, depression, anxiety, I think it, it comes from various external factors as well. Mm-hmm. So for me, the sports and so not being able to play sports is a big one that I have to watch out for. Yeah. So the goal being to not get injured <laughs> because yeah. that's its own mental health struggle. It's tricky because the thing that you need to do to keep your mental health going is what will injure you, which will cause right. your mental health to fall apart. <laughs> exactly. So it's like finding that cost benefit with like risk and managing risk. Yeah. So I do a lot of rock climbing and mountain biking. I used to do more team-based sports, competitive, like soccer, basketball, karate, things where you're doing a lot of contact with, with other uh-huh. people. But the issue with that is it 
takes a little bit of control and predictability out of it because folks might, you know, yeah. I'd tackle you or, you know, there's just a lot going on. So now I found more independent sports like rock climbing. Well, you know, you need a partner, but still you have a little more control. Not, that's not to say it's totally safe. It can be a very dangerous sport, but the point being that mountain biking and rock climbing are more independent partner based, like small team kind of activities and managing the risk and the cost benefit of that. So I can stay out in nature yep. and be moving my body with hopefully mitigating risk and injury. So I don't fall back into depression yeah anxiety, things like that. Yeah. That really feeds you. I can tell you are not the kind of person that would have a nine to five desk job. (laughs) No, not technically. I mean, I work a lot. I have a few different hats I wear, but I work remotely as a creative person. And as a entrepreneur, I like to work on various projects, Mm -hmm. but I lucked out. I found um, one of the hats I wear is, is being employed through the center for applied research solutions. And that job just happened to be remote in 2015 when I got the job. So kind of an OG remote worker in that way. I've been working remote for about, oh gosh, I mean, seven years or so. Ah, And what do you do for them? So I work on various mental health and behavioral health grants that we, that we get awarded state and federal grants. So I do technical assistance. I do video editing, various research projects, things like that. So nice. So are all the different things you do, they're all mental health related. Yes. The common denominator between all of them is mental health, behavioral health, public health, LGBTQ as well, substance use. But yeah, it's fair to say that everything is mental health related. Yeah. Yeah. And addiction, substance use is mental health related too. I th- Absolutely. Which came first, you know, mm-hmm. I think my son was medicating his own mental health issues away when he started using substances when he was 12 or 13. Absolutely. I can relate to that too, using various substances to numb the feeling to kind of take out that emotional credit card again. And that was easier at the time during certain points in my life to use certain drugs to numb the pain or to have fun, which was maybe a form of distraction in a way. Mm -hmm. I never had really an addiction per Mm -hmm. se. I never had like one or two or a collection of drugs that I used on a very ongoing addictive So I can't really relate to that as directly. I think that I do have that predisposition of if I were to get in the wrong drug or be in the wrong place, I could see how that could happen, which is why I think I try to really be safe and try to almost avoid those situations and and the potential areas because I know myself, but I'm also a little older now. I think the 18-year-old Amanda could have easily gone down that path. My, My parents actually used to always say when I was in that crisis mode, when I was 17, 18 years old, that they thought that I would end up in the morgue, the hospital or jail. Yeah. Uh, and of course I ended up in the psychiatric hospital, which can feel like its own form of jail, depending on where we are and how we look at it. They don't let you out. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. You're so, stuck in there. Yeah. All that to say I was on the wrong path and yeah. I feel blessed to be where I am now, but it definitely a lot of luck, a lot of hard work and a lot of support. I really could not have done it alone. It sounds like you had parents that were very supportive of you. Yeah, I did. I had parents who were supportive. They also struggled, I think, with how to parent me. You know, how do you parent a kid who, <laughs> you know, is quote unquote problem child? You know, that's has that has its own complications. Mm-hmm. I wasn't an easy kid to raise. And I think my parents and I didn't have a healthy relationship always. I think we mm. agreed to disagree, if you will, mm-hmm. in terms of how we were in the same household and the different boundaries and rules and 
I was the kid that would push back and would question and would rebel. And it makes sense because I'm an entrepreneur and I like to do things my own way. And, but yet, you know, also collaborate, but I think, yeah, the point being that to kind of be a disruptor, be a disruptive innovator. But when I was in my teens, that looked a lot more like being a troublemaker and pushing the limits and driving my parents crazy. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So if anyone has a rebellious kid right now, that's a teenager, look, when they're 31, they will have made amazing things and made a path for themselves. So, (laughs) well, you know, it was that constant balance of my parents trying to navigate and reconcile between, well, do we just give her a long leash and let her do Uh whatever she wants or, or do we have really strict structured rules? Uh, And I, I think they quickly learned that the more rules and boundaries they had in place, the more I would learn or find a way to break them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Understandably they had rules and curfews. I mean, of course I can only imagine I'm not a parent. So I'm sure if I were a parent, I would have those boundaries and rules as well. However, with my disposition, I did not agree or like a lot of those, which led to, you know, sneaking out and maybe partying, doing drugs. Also, I would say normative things. These are also quite normative things I think for teenagers to do. I think what they didn't anticipate, nor did I, was that really the transition point when I had my first break and experienced induced psychosis and complete mania. And really the culmination of my mental health breakdown was when I transitioned from senior year of high school Mm -hmm. to freshman year of college. And that was really when everything hit the fan and the kind of slow burn of anxiety, depression throughout middle school and high school from injuries, just being a kid, going through puberty, right? Just like having rebellious attitude, things like that. It really took a turn for the worse when I was going through that transition from senior year to college. And and that's when a few months in, I just experienced that complete break and gave away my life savings, was very delusional. Um, What do you mean you gave it away? I thought that I was on the Truman Show. It's common as this thing called the Truman Show delusion. And the Truman Show, for those who don't know, is a film with Jim Carrey. And the whole premise is that Jim Carrey basically doesn't realize that he is being filmed without his consent. And he's kind of part of this reality TV show for the world to watch him. And he's kind of like this puppet in the, in the world. And there's this mission control that's kind of changing the weather and just controlling everything. And it's very much like this make-believe society. Mm-hmm. And I had that experience, which is common apparently with psychosis and delusional thinking. That's like, it's called the Truman Show effect, or the Truman Show mm-hmm. delusion, I forget which. So I basically believed truly believed at my very core that I was being filmed and people were listening and watching me. And actually this was a very enlightening and happy manic episode that I had in this way. Um, because for some reason I felt like we all had to go through this experience and it was just sort of like my turn. And so I was like next up in the queue of Amanda is in the spotlight and has to prove to the world who she is and what she wants to do. And I thought, Oh, this is my time. Like I want to be a psychologist. I want to do all these things. And I actually thought it was a turning point in my crisis. And it was a good thing. Of course, I was delusional. I didn't realize that I was actually having induced psychosis and mania. And so that feeling, that behavior, those thoughts is what triggered my giving away all my belongings, my life savings and dropping out of college. And that was the rock bottom I had. But again, I wasn't this happy, grandiose, elated state. Ah, So I was having a great time. I bet your family was confused. Yes. And fast forward to being transported to a psychiatric inpatient unit, actually it was ICU. And that was when my, my journey in the hospital began spending, it was around three months cycling between ICU inpatient and outpatient services. 
And that was when the rock bottom really hit. That was a weird time where my mind was like, wait, I thought you were on the Truman show. I thought that you, uh, my mind was, I didn't trust my mind at that point. Now I was having sort of a delusion within a delusion of, well, wait a minute. I thought that it was my turn to sort of have my moment in life. Uh And now I'm in a hospital and I'm being told that that's not true. And so that's Uh when kind of the depression and the rock bottom hit like the opposite side of the crash from the high. And so, yeah, sounds like a really horrible time. You've, you said induced psychosis. What does that mean? Who's inducing it or who or what? What does that mean? Drugs. Oh, uh-huh. drugs, lack of sleep. And these were more just drugs that I took. Nothing I had an addiction to, but just partying. I've heard of cannabis induced psychosis. Is that what you're yep, talking about? That was probably part of it. <laughs> cannabis. I think Adderall. Uh-huh. Let's see. I think even within, it was within like a three month period that I did kind of a little bit of everything. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. All those things for a brain like me did not do well. And especially the lack of sleep and the not working out. And Uh I wasn't eating well. I wasn't going to class. I mean, you name it. I mean, a bad relationship with my parents. I mean, it was pretty much like every stressor you can possibly think of Uh, for myself and for my family. I didn't have any friends. I mean, I was a freshman in college, right? That's such a tough transition right there. Oh, absolutely. Trying to figure out identity. Oh, so tough. Yeah. My son had a lot of problems with cannabis. The cannabis today is so different. And I'm sure still 11 years ago or whenever this all happened to you, it is so much stronger than what we parents remember it being. It's so strong right now. So be careful out there. It's not just quote unquote, just weed anymore. Uh, And Joey also used psychedelics, which kind of gave him all sorts of images and ideas of what reality is, except it's not really reality. Well, it depends on how you look at it, I guess. But (laughs) the worldly reality we have to live in day to day is not quite as fun as the subconscious reality that he was going to. So, yeah, it's very dangerous. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, the psychedelics and the cannabis. There's, I think, a lot of different schools of thought with it, of course. There's lots of different literature coming out with sort of the benefits of different different drugs and ketamine and psychedelics for and especially for PTSD for veterans and things. So it's complicated, right? Because every mind is different, has its own makeup. And I'm definitely not a psychologist or a neurologist or a doctor. So I can't speak to that in that professional lens, but just from what I've read and been exposed to as an advocate and just a self-learner, I just know for me and just being, being able to speak for myself that I have to be very careful with what I expose myself to. In fact, I don't even drink coffee, even coffee. Like, I mean, I'm very sensitive to sensory, like audio sound, which is why I work alone. I mean, I like work work, work remotely rather. Um, Being able to control my sensory environment and also any kind of drugs, whether it's nicotine, caffeine, and then of course, sleep and working out. Like those are really my main areas that I have to regulate or I know that the next day or even the, the moment is going to be really tough for me. Wow. So kind of balancing all of those chemicals that you bring into your body and create within your own body, the adrenaline and all that, that kind of dopamine and stuff like that. Exactly. Uh, like what are those natural drugs, those natural yeah. neurotransmitters and that our body produces and how to regulate that. And knowing that, for example, whenever I'm having a hard time, if I'm experiencing a bout of depression or anxiety, even just like on a regular day, like yesterday, even I was feeling kind of out of it. And I thought, okay, Go through your self-regimen checklist. Have you had a green smoothie today? Did you get eight hours of sleep? Did you drink coffee? Like trying to narrow down and Uh illuminate what could be the issue. Uh Did I do all my health and wellness things? And, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's diet, working out, or did something happen socially? 
emotionally in my, in my circle? Did I get in a fight with someone or did I have a romantic issue with someone I'm dating or, you know, what could be that trigger point? I'm kind of constantly trying to investigate. And again, that self-awareness can be a blessing or a curse, but for me, I've tried to really see it as a blessing and not take that emotional credit card out and and use it because I think it compounds into the worst interest ever, which is like having a breakdown. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 I literally have a checklist I do every night. Exercise, comedy. I have to watch comedy every day of some sort or listen to it somehow. Meditation, quality time with my wife, planning my food. My food's really important, but the exercise is huge. And I'm super not an athlete, but I have to raise my heart rate every day or else I go down very quickly. It's amazing. I hear you. And it's really important to me. And I know for Joey, a lot of times when he's not feeling well, he sits in his room on his device all day, you know, and doesn't move, doesn't go outside, doesn't get fresh air, doesn't move his body at all. And I just, if I did that, I would be probably dead right now. Oh yeah. That's a, that's a whole other issue. I think where, and there's this term I learned called differential susceptibility, where some kids or people exposed to social media have adverse negative effects. And then some people, it doesn't phase them at all. And I'm like, I wish I could be like that, but I'm I'm more in that category of, I cannot get into the doom scrolling or I actually unfollowed most of my friends and family and just people, because I don't want to, I don't want to see their lives. I want to like talk to them because I love them. And I only try to follow DIY projects or mountain biking or rock climbing and try actually not to scroll even at all because I get that I get this weird feeling of I don't know just lots of negative thoughts and so I post on social media because I like to see it as like a scrapbook for myself or a portfolio uh-huh. but I really try to actually for me have the boundary of avoiding scrolling yeah. or if I do it's like five minutes a day and then yeah. I, I feel a lot better actually implementing that boundary for myself yeah I recently took Facebook off my phone again and God, I don't need it. <laughs> it's like, right. Why do I have to keep scrolling? But they do that on purpose. You know, they just keep it endlessly scrolling for you. So there's no end to it and they make it addictive on purpose. So right. they're out to get us. I think those uh, social media people, I feel bad for the kids. I know it's so hard. If my adolescence were on video for the world to see the rest of my life, holy shit, that would be terrible. <laughs> it's I a don't know world how- that we live in with technology. And I think it's, wonderful and in a lot of ways in terms of how it's connected us and brought folks and topics Mm -hmm. together. And I think, yeah, we can't control the tech. And so how do we control ourselves and have those boundaries and, and try to replace them with maybe other activities or people. And like you said, like, I also have to get my heart rate up every day or I kind of lose Mm -hmm. it and realizing the benefit of clocking off and getting off the grid. In fact, I'm building out a van right now in Lake Tahoe region where I'm currently living. A big reason for that is to really simplify my life and minimize all the decision-making and all of the clutter. And that's just a choice that I've made for myself. All my friends and my siblings are buying houses. And I thought, well, this is going to be my version of my first house. I'm going to buy a van. I'm going to build it out. I'm going to work and live in my van. (laughs) Nice. I love that. I love that. I can't do that at this point in my life, but I think that sounds so cool. And then you're free to go wherever you want. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Well, you've been on some interesting jobs and on boards of mental health organizations, and you've kind of seen the backside of how things are operating kind of on the policy level, would you say, and the community level, what secrets have you learned being in those boardrooms and back rooms? What's underneath it all? Well, I think underneath it all, there's a lot of folks who are really passionate about trying to improve the system. I, I find that in a lot of these different committees or boardrooms or things, it's a lot of 
parents and peers. <laughs> I often don't see people who are in the profession just because it, you know, it, there's usually a lot of, a lot of care and there's a personal story behind it. Yeah. That's the main thing I noticed, which I think is, is wonderful because I personally need that in my career, in my life to be around purpose driven, mission driven, mm. authentic causes that are they're human based, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we all have mental health and it's just a matter of degrees with yeah. how we experience it and, and how we struggle, how we cope. That's just part of the human experience. I think we're seeing a lot of shifts in terms of mobile crisis response and trying to really mm. meet people in the community and have more of yeah. that community response, especially with the rollout of 988 and yes. the new 911 of mental health and that having its own network of response. And of course that's yes. new. I'm sure it'll take as did 911 many years for people to trust and for that response to be seamless. But I think it's a move in the direction of trying to differentiate response in more of the criminal justice aspect versus folks who are having a mental health crisis, which I can relate to personally. My parents at one point did call the police because they were worried that I was actually, I refell into having a manic episode during that kind of three month cycle. When I was 18, going through inpatient, outpatient ICU, there was a point where I re-entered the Truman show and I thought that I was being filmed and went manic. It was actually because of, I think, being overly medicated. I think that was actually induced from being on too many drugs. But nonetheless, I I went back into that state and they were very concerned. And while I wasn't being violent, I think they were worried about my... I was just very irritable and very aggravated. And who knows, right? I mean, who knows what would have happened? I mean, I don't know what I would have done. I, I can't honestly say that I would not have been capable of maybe hurting myself or maybe hurting someone else, God forbid. I mean, I can't imagine doing that, but you know, you never know when you're in those states. And yeah. I have to speak truthfully about that, that, it, you know, when I wasn't fully myself, then it's, it's hard. I couldn't a hundred percent with certainty say that I was completely safe to myself or others, right? Yeah. Yeah. Personally, I think we need more leadership and vulnerability with those things because I'm not ashamed of it. It's just what happened. Yeah. And it took a long time to kind of be open about it. <laughs> so. Uh-huh. so they called 911 and cops came out to help you. And how did that go? They did. And the goal was really to get me to take my meds. I think that was part of it. Honestly, it's hard to remember because I think it was kind of traumatic, but I think that I was refusing to take my meds mm-hmm. because I felt like the meds were causing issues, which ironically, I think it was right. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> no one knew at that point. Yeah. And understandably, my parents and the doctors were very much take the meds, get better. That was yeah. kind of the, the yeah. model and honestly still is in a lot of ways, which I think has a lot of issues. Um, that's kind of a whole other conversation, but the, the reason they were called is because I was unwell clearly and I needed basically like a PRN or some kind of medication to yeah. calm me down. And I refused to take it. So the cops mm-hmm. came and basically give me a choice. You're going to go to the hospital or you're going to take this medication. And of course I didn't want to go to the hospital. It's kind of like a, a lose-lose situation yeah. in my mind, oh, but understandably, I mean, I'm thinking of my parents too, in this situation where I probably would have done the same thing, maybe not in terms of medical intervention with pills, but some kind of intervention because they were worried about me. And so that's kind of, I guess, the reason I brought up the the crisis response is that I think that if that had happened now, 10 years later with 988 or with more community outreach, mobile response, and kind of less of that biomedical primary Mm -hmm. focus, but thinking more of like, let's talk about this. What's, what's going on? Like, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? What's your story? Right. What's under the hood? I think that would have been a different response and the escalation wouldn't have been there as much. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree with you. And I love the new emphasis on social workers instead of cops coming out and helping us. And for me, who has a child whose dream would be suicide by cop, having a cop in my house, which happened, and he was standing in my son's doorway of his bedroom. So he was basically blocking my son in his bedroom. I was absolutely terrified. 
because my son's dream would be to grab that cop's gun and then he would be shot and he would be dead. And that cop had no idea that that was in my son's mind. And we just don't need guns. (laughs) We don't need guns almost always when there's mental health going on. I mean, that just complicates things totally. We need people really, really skilled in mental health. And my son actually just recently called 988. He was suicidal. He had actually just tried to kill himself. And he called 988. And this woman was an angel. She knew exactly how to validate him, how to go, man, it sounds like that really sucked. And, you know, just kind of talk to him very, very calmly and respectfully. And not like he was in trouble or something. Like if you call 911, it feels like you're in trouble. So yay, 988. And hopefully, you know, it'll continue that way. Yeah, I hear you. I I think that compassion and empathy and like you say, that active listening and all those different skills, which are very much part of cognitive behavioral therapy, essentially, but in a conversational manner in terms of de-escalation, I think that that's critical. And unfortunately, I think a lot of that responsibility has been with police officers and that shouldn't be their sole job. I mean, of course, it's part of, you know, any kind of de-escalation with folks who are in need of support or who maybe are experiencing any kind of violent behavior. But I think it's too much responsibility. And I I, I feel for them as well, for police officers who have a lot of that burden and also emergency nurses, right? We're we're basically the first responders, folks who come, you know, like all those different first entry points. And that's where you know, we have the sequential intercept model, which is a fancy basically name for the process by which we try to intervene and try to divert people away from the criminal justice system and into into rehabilitation, right, into community-based care, and also the parents and caregivers too. I mean, you know, it's a very vulnerable, potentially traumatic time where Mm -hmm. I think compassion and curiosity is, is, is essential. Oh, I love those two words, compassion and curiosity. Those are amazing words instead of judgment or So we had a doctor come and say, I know who you are. I know what kind of person you are. You're just looking for attention. Mm. This was a doctor in the ER after my son came in with a huge, highly suicidal ideation. And that, you know, needless to say, made things way worse. And so that kind of shit just cannot happen. Right. And I don't know what that would take because that was in an ER. You'd think ER people would understand that these people are coming in kind of vulnerable. Right. And need yeah. that compassionate curiosity instead of judgment. And I know who you are. What the hell? Right. I know who you are. Right. What does that mean? We're already judging ourselves. We don't need judgment yes. from around. And honestly, also, I think there's a healthcare crisis happening with healthcare workers themselves. So to, oh, absolutely. So to also have compassion both ways. I think, you know, the burnout and the the violence in the workplace on also the healthcare side yes. of things. It's its own. Oh, yes. And, you know, it's interesting too, that whole seeking attention thing, because there's one way to say it, kind of how you said it there, like how that individual said it with, it sounds like a tone of judgment. For me, whenever I had those, I mean, in a way I was kind of seeking attention and not in a way of like, in a, in a way where in the media or with the way it's sort of in a dramatic sense, but I was seeking yeah. attention and I'm wanting people to care and listen. So I think it's fair. I think that in my opinion, it's the whole seeking attention thing is, is kind of ironic in a way, because I think we, yeah, I, in those moments of crisis, I did want care and compassion. Yeah. Maybe attention is, yeah. is, is the, is the wrong word choice. But for me, I, 
I, I wanted people to care and listen and to, to help. So I think it's a little interesting when you have folks who kind of don't understand that. Yeah. He said it very derogatorily. And then it made my right, son wonder, am I just seeking for attention? And yeah, you're right. He, he was seeking for extremely intense attention. He needed attention at that moment in time. He needed some deep attention and he's still not really getting that. He's not getting the kind of you know, deep looking at his issues that he's really craving and, and asking for. Right. He's yeah. Still not getting that. So maybe, yeah, he was looking for attention, but not like I'm just doing this for attention. Exactly. But when we see someone struggling like that, or like you were maybe as a society or as a doctor or as a whoever, we can say, wow, this person needs something. Right. I don't know what it is, but they need something badly. And what can I do to help get them what they need? Right. It's some kind of call for support, I think. Yeah. And- I think in in micro ways throughout my relationships with my friends, family, peers, there's many versions of that where it's like, hey, it sounds like, hey, do you want to talk that through? Like, how are you doing? It it sounds like you want to unpack that. How can I help? Can I be a listener? Do you want advice? Like, Mm -hmm. and I think for me, a big part of how I improve my relationship with my family, especially my primary nuclear family, but also my friends around me and being a better friend going both ways is to really kind of ask right? Uh-huh. And just like, Hey, how can I help? And being very direct. I mean, I'm already a pretty direct person by nature because I just mm-hmm. think that's an easier way to get to, to the bottom of things. Mm-hmm. But especially as just being a good friend and a better sibling and daughter is just being very intentional about, Hey, how can I support you right now? Yeah. Do you want me to be a listener? Do you want me to be an ear so you can vent? And what's appropriate also those boundaries where what's, mm-hmm. what feels appropriate and where is it sharing versus trauma dumping and, and where might those situations be better suited with a therapist and a professional versus something where it feels appropriate with a friend or a family member or things like that. Would you advise parents to be more open with their kids? Looking back, I know your parents did the best they could and no one's blaming anyone, but if you could have been more honest and open about what was going on with you, do you think any of that could have been mitigated? Yeah, it's it's tricky. I think on one hand, my parents did absolutely everything they could and had you know nothing but love and desire for me to feel well and to have a, a healthier, happier family unit. Yeah. I grew up with resources, very privileged, right? In a way where I didn't have a lot to worry about other than my own issues mm-hmm. <laughs> and going through teenage troubles and things, but I didn't have to worry about food on the table, right? And finances. So in a lot of ways, I was very privileged and I have to acknowledge that because I think that oftentimes folks don't have that. And, and I, mm-hmm. so in a lot of ways, I was very blessed. And, and that said, I think, yeah, my parents were figuring it out as, as they were raising me. And I have an older sister and a younger brother, and they didn't have a whole lot of issues growing up. They were pretty, just your average, wonderful children. And so I think I was pretty unique in that situation where I I had more of the mental health issues Mm -hmm. and kind of a different mind and just way Mm -hmm. of thinking. I think maybe I needed a different level of emotional availability than my parents had the capacity to Uh, provide. uh I was also not out of the closet at that point. I didn't know that I was gay. Uh And I think we, as a school and a community didn't have, and even parents didn't have a lot of education around how to bring that up at the dinner table and how to Uh ask the direct question of like, Hey, do you like boys and girls? And so while they allowed me to do whatever I wanted, as far as expression identity, and, you know, I was kind of the tomboy growing up, they also didn't know how, and I say this with compassion. I don't think they knew how to ask me 
if it was something other than boys, oh. <laughs> you know, so it's not that they did anything wrong necessarily, but they didn't know what to do. And in terms of maybe facilitating more of that openness and that emotional dialogue or gender orientation, because I think that was a big part of my mental health crisis was actually a subconscious, deep misery and isolation with actually being gay. Yeah. And again, I think it's also a societal education issue where I didn't have a lot of mentors or even sex education was very heteronormative. Yes. Um, so it's not just, you know, my parents, but also looking at the whole system in terms of how do we give young people tools, access, questions, opportunities to express themselves and play with those different mm -hmm. situations. So all that to say that I think they did the best they could, but I think I needed a, a different level of emotional availability and perhaps direct communication as far as always being different and needing someone to really help bring that out. Mm -hmm. I'll put in the notes, the Pride and Joy Foundation. I interviewed the founder, Elena Joy Thurston, and they are doing amazing work with parents to help educate how to deal with these conversations around LGBTQ issues. So, right. and she has parent classes and things like that. It's so important. And I just think this openness that we're talking about is so critical that whatever is going on with your kid, it's just on the table. We can talk about whatever. It's easier to talk about it than to, you know, end up hospitalized or end up after suicide or end up after a drug overdose. Let's talk things through when we can, you know, it's, right. it can only, I think 99% of the time it can only help. Right. Yeah. And I would add to that too, that wonderful list of just openness and talking of having those access points for professional help. And, yeah. you know, my parents, I have to give them a lot of credit for, they kind of almost knew <laughs> in a way that I wasn't doing well and have been spiraling when I transitioned from senior year of high school to freshman year of college and already had me hooked into the accommodations and okay. mental health services yeah. system in college. Yeah. Of course, at the time I wasn't willing or able to admit or to seek help. And that was a lot of layers of stigma and avoidance and things like that. But the effort and the intention was there of needing a network of support professionally as well and having those accommodations in place. So that way the responsibility was like uh, sort of proliferated, if you will, yeah. across all different levels of care. Yeah, so important. So important. And to seek those kind of out and know where those access points are before you actually need them in a crisis would be really smart. <laughs> right, right. Very good. Well, is there anything that you'd like to say or talk about that I didn't ask you about yet? Gosh, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's mental health as a journey. I, I think the biggest thing that I've learned is just kind of what I touched on in the beginning of just trying to befriend the the parts of me that are hard or negative. And I think as a perfectionist or maybe as someone who has a little bit of OCD and kind of struggles in different domains of, you know, I have to really remind myself and have grace with fallibility and that it's okay to not get it right. Whether it's with work or relationships, breakups are actually a big, navigating that can be really hard. Mm -hmm. And so I think I've just tried to really embrace and welcome those mistakes as, as learning points and that I'm not alone yeah. and we are not alone. And I think if we feel that that's natural and that's, it's part of life, but there's probably someone out there who's struggling feeling the same way that you do. And because someone who's also an introvert, I can feel lonely all the time mm -hmm. and not that introverts are, are lonely. I don't mean to imply that, but I think that there's a loneliness deep down in me just with what I've been through in life. But I try to channel that and harness that into something that can feel yeah, being involved in mental health and doing things like this with you, having the podcast and feeling connected with folks. I think that's the biggest thing that helped me when I was going through my crisis and coming out of it was actually connecting with mental health advocates, joining, mm. you know, groups like the National Alliance on Mental Illness and other groups, and they're all doing different things. And mm -hmm. 
have different takes on mental health, but community, I think is, is huge and to not get too isolated. (laughs) So I have to be careful about that still to this day, to not get too isolated, to not get in my sort of rabbit hole of creativity or even despair sometimes, but Mm -hmm. to really remind myself that there's people like you and and your audience and organizations out there who are just trying to figure it out and we're, we're here together. So. Yes, 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 yes. I am totally on board with you. If people want to get a hold of you or check out your films or your art projects, or you have so many things going on. How do they find you? Yeah. You know, I'm pretty Googleable. <laughs> um, you can just search, you know, my name, Amanda Lip, and my social media, I think is pretty public. I'm not like a huge social media person, but I do try to post things about mental health or my life, my, my van conversion, my art projects, <laughs> things like that. I'm pretty open about my projects. And then of course, on my website, you can check out the films and you can contact me through my email form there. Um, so always welcome talking to folks. <laughs> oh, great, great. I'll link all that to the show notes. And thank you so much for being here and sharing your story. It's very inspirational and I just appreciate your honesty and your openness. Yeah, well, thank you for doing this. I think the podcast like this and building community is is so critically important. Yeah. So thank you yeah. for leading this and I'm really just honored to be here. And, and uh, so I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, thank you so much. Everyone, please share this episode with anyone you know that has teens or young adults that might be struggling with their mental illness or heck, adults, whatever. (laughs) Whoever is struggling with mental illness, we all are in it together. So thank you so much. And Amanda and I want you all to stay Stay safe. safe.